10, we'll begin with verse 7. On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph, his brethren, to thank the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant with, which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. When you were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. When they went from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord, all, ye earth, all the earthly. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship the Lord in a beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world also was firmly established. It shall not be moved. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the fields rejoice in all that is in it. Then the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And say, save us, O God, of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Father, thank you uh, for the glorious God, which you are, but not only a glorious God, but a personal God who loved us, Father, who proved that love in the cross when you sent the Lord Jesus, your only son, when you laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Father, we're thankful that he not only died for our sins, but there was buried and rose again. And thank you because of that, Father, you extend to us forgiveness of sins and the offer of eternal life, the assurance of forever in heaven with you. But thank you, Father, that your love and goodness did not end there, for you are a good God in all areas of life. Father, you are continually faithful to us. You've given us promises to help us navigate this life. You've given us promises of your comfort, of your presence, of your strength, and of your courage. Father, you work in our lives to accomplish your will. You sustain us, protect us, and oversee us. Father, you are truly a great and glorious God. But thank you, Father, that we are also privileged to walk with you, which is an amazing thing. To think that we as sinners, as humble sinners on this sin-cursed planet, can walk with you each day. And Father, you desire, desire to father us, to guide us, to empower us and strengthen us. And so today, Father, as we come before you, may you not only receive our worship, Father, but we, we, but we come with submissive hearts. A desire to know you and to love you in return. 
to walk with you each day. And Father, today instruct us in that way. Teach us in the way we should go. Help us to understand more of your goodness and glory and greatness, but also of your provisions and of your presence and of your promises and the directions you've given us. So quiet our hearts, prepare us to hear your word. May we come before you in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. May we have an awesome respect for your word and for your person. And Father, may your spirit be our teacher and guide that we might understand wonderful things about our Savior today. And so we're thankful for each one who's here today. We come to worship you, to learn of you. We prepare that you would direct our, our worship and our study this morning. And for those who are not with us, Father, you'd watch over them as well and drive them to yourself. And so, Father, be glorified as we study together. Be our teacher and guide now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn with me to the book of Philippians. As we come close to wrapping up our verse-by-verse study of the book of Philippians, we come here to the last few verses of chapter 4 and just pick it up where we kind of left off last time in verse 20. After the discussion about God supplying all of our need in verse 19, uh, the writer says, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This letter of Philippians ends with somewhat of a typical greeting, really, because that tends to be what writers did. They put their greetings at the end of their letters, didn't they, in the New Testament epistles. And we find these greetings. We saw a reference to the grace of God, which is common. But before we get to this farewell, we find this statement of emphasis, of conclusion to this letter in verse 20, where he says, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So be it, he says. And these type of doxological statements that we find here in verse 20 are common in scriptures. And they often conclude or come on the heels of some great teaching or learning or discussion about the goodness and greatness of our God. And the book of Romans, that great book on justification and the passages on sanctification and, and, and regarding the grace of God, we find this at the end of the book in Romans 16, 27, where it says, To God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And some of these doxologies are brief like that in this response to the, to the wonder of our God. But some are longer. Earlier in the book, in Romans chapter 11, after a three-chapter discussion about how God managed to, to establish his plans for both the Gentiles and the Jews, He's, the writer of Romans, the Apostle Paul, seems to come to a crescendo. It really seems to be an outburst, an overflow of excitement, really, when he says in Romans eleven thirty three through 36, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, who has, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Then we find here in the book of Ephesians, after the biblical teaching and explanation of the oneness that, accomp that God accomplished with the Jew and the Gentile becoming one body in Christ, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says this, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then one more, at the conclusion of that great book of Hebrews, 
which establishes for the Jews to whom it was written, for you and I, for all, for all eternity, that, that the offering of Jesus Christ is once and forever and final payment for sin on the cross. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says this, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, in some ways, all of these doxologies, amongst the others in the scriptures, should bring to us goosebumps, spiritual goosebumps. When we recognize the greatness of our God, they all focus on and end with and bring to the, to the point of our attention the glory of our God. And bringing in and all these things that they've learned, studied, discovered about the, the goodness and greatness and awesomeness of our God, attributes to them, to him, the credit, the honor, and the glory. And so it does here in the book of Philippians, though short and sweet, after the teachings that we've learned in the book of Philippians, Paul gives credit and honor to God in the work he is doing in the life of the church at Philippi and the things they have learned, the things about, about the furtherance of the gospel, the, the things they've studied in regards to the work of God working in our hearts, the unity of the faith and the joy and peace and contentment. And all those things we've seen in the book of Philippians comes of this, this crescendo, this doxology, that honor and glory belong to our God. Now that's a broad subject to speak about because the glory of God is reflected in all areas of life. Yet sometimes it's not something we give a lot of thought to in our day, daily life. And one thing we will learn from these things is that worship is not limited to worship services, is it? Really, worship is a right heart response to so knowing something about our God. And it is giving honor and glory to God in, in that should be an underlying attitude in all that we do and it should permeate every aspect of everyday life, which, necess which necessitates obviously seeing God in the big things and in the little things in life. And so what is glory? What does it mean to give glory to God? Well, in reality, it is simple. It is simply the recognition of the good and glorious and the honorable things of God, things which we see in all that he is and all that he does. It's simply giving respect where it's due as we read in our scripture reading in First Chronicles this morning. The result of seeing the good and glorious and honorable things of God may result in worship, might result in awe or respect or even surrender to his authority. But the focus is that, that Paul brings this book to is that the source of that is the person of God. He is the one worthy of, the honor, of honor and glory because what is glorious about God is his person, his attributes, and the works in all, that he, in all that he is and all that he does and has done. Every aspect of God is glorious and worthy of our respect. And therefore, giving him honor and glory is simply giving him what he's due, seeing him for what he is and all his beauty and wonder. And if you turn with me to Psalm 19, when we consider the glory of God in Scripture, the Bible has a little lots to say about it, and we'll just focus on a few things this morning. But the first thing we realize is that the glory of God is exhibiting in creation, isn't it? It's on exhibit. If you turn to Psalm 19, if you care to follow along this morning, we find here the fact that creation really declares, screams, the glory of God. Verse 1, where it says, the heavens declare, the word declare means shout loud, means a scream, it, it declares. It's like, you know, sometimes we hear noises that we can hardly take. I was working 
in a closed area with my son the other day, and he was using an air nailer, and it was just ex- kind of like, I, you know, I have hard of hearing, and I had to cover my ears. It was annoying. And uh, I think the other day when my grandson walked in the service when we were singing, it must have been too loud for him because he came in covering his ears. I'm not sure what that meant, but maybe it's because I was off tune. I don't know. Maybe that was annoying. And, and that's what this is saying. This is so loud, we can't ignore it. That's what this means. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And it goes on. This is a, you know, this is like one of those tapes that keeps playing over and over again. Day unto day it utters speech and night unto night it reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where it's not heard. In other words, it, it crosses all language barriers and all cultures, doesn't it? The line has gone out through all the earth. There were words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there's nothing hidden from its heat and so on. And so the, the glory of God is declared here as being revealed in creation and to observers that are simply willing to see it. It screams his glory, the wonder of his person, the marvel of his design, does it not? And that's why to deny creation is really to blind yourself to the evidence because it's everywhere. Even in this brutal winter we've had, I've had several people tell me, isn't it been a beautiful winter? And I think, well, I might not put it quite in those terms. <laughs> and my wife was one of those after I come in plowing and shoveling for half a day. Isn't it pretty out there? <laughs> you know, I'm glad she sees it that way. I have a friend I'm that... that is impressed in the, cr- in the creative acts of God in, a, in, s- in the simple model of a little bird. He's, he sits in his, in his easy chair, and right outside his, I don't know if he has a bird feeder, just some branches, but he's got this little, I don't know if it's a finch, some little bird. We've come to call it stick legs. And he says he marvels that it could be 30 below, and those legs don't fall off, <laughs> don't they? I know I can wear the biggest boots and wool socks and layers, and I will freeze my toes off outside. And, and yet here... God designed this animal to survive our brutal winters and those little stick legs don't fall off and those toes wrapped around that frozen branch. There's evidence everywhere and maybe all of us are impressed with different aspects of creation. You know, I like sports and I've never ceased to be amazed at hand-eye coordination type of stuff. The reaction time of our our body is amazing to me. And those things aren't obviously not accidents. You know, and, and God intended that, this this replaying tape that goes day after day after day for us to recognize him, to see him, to see his wisdom and his power and his might who created these things. It's something we are to acknowledge, but when we do, it does kind of put us in our place, and maybe that's why some resist sometimes, because it puts us in our place as the created ones, which means we must ultimately answer to our creator if we are the created ones. And many of, many of mankind resist that notion, that thought, or they may give a nod to God to, to realize that he, we've been created to answer to him is sometimes a uh, thought that is rejected by many, isn't it? And that's why evolution hands people such a handy excuse to ignore the evidence. Because now we have a naturalistic explanation which really denies the evidence or interprets it according to their own secular worldview who denies a creator. Because if we evolve, there's no creator. There's also no absolute morals, by the way. So that takes pulls a rug out from under any. Un, oh, and, <laughs> let's try this again. Pulls a rug out from under any laws we try to establish. 
And what it says to us is that we're just a piece of meat with no real worth, value, purpose, or meaning, and therefore we can practice euthanasia, population control, and all those things. And, and deny the very life that God created and values. And in that situation, then, we also become gods of our own existence, don't we, if there's no creator? Guess who promised that way back in Genesis chapter 3? Who promised that? He's just giving us what we want, being gods of our own existence. And then the Bible becomes another book of fables, and we can ignore it, disregard it. That's what evolution has done. But to acknowledge a creator, on the other hand, to see God in the creation, to hear the evidence that he's given us, not only through creation but through his word, helps us to take our rightful place. And that's why God, often in his discussion with mankind, reminds them, has to give us a little reminder. Hey, do you know who you're messing with here? Do you know who you're dealing with? Have you forgotten who's your creator here? Remember in Isaiah chapter 40? where God establishes his, his almighty, sovereign power, he says this, have you not known? Have you not heard? In other words, have you forgotten? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable, and on and on it goes. Have you not known? Don't you know that? Don't you realize who the creator is here? In Job, that great discussion with Job, in Job 38 and onward, he begins that discussion by asking a simple question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he goes on to talk about all those creative acts and power and might and wisdom. And the, and the point in these things is not that God is an arrogant God that loves attention like some people are. He's not like that. He is simply stating the facts. The glory that is due him is to recognize he is an almighty creator and a loving God. And when we acknowledge God as creator, not only is he glorified when we acknowledge his creative act, but then we can enjoy his benefits because he's also a good God, a loving God, a faithful God who cares about us. And that's why Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of enjoying the benefits of his person and all he seeks to provide for us. And, and that really starts for mankind with the gospel, doesn't it? The glorious gospel of our blessed God. Because not only is God creator, but he is also, as a loving father, the provider of our greatest need. Which was deliverance and rescue from eternal hell. Because sin has separated between us and our God. And God himself came up with a plan to rescue us. Now man has his alternatives. Religion and good works and all these things that, think, that they think will atone, uh, uh, atone God. But there's only one thing that satisfied the wrath of God, and that was the blood of Christ. There's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sins. It is the blood of Christ that offered one sacrifice for sins forever. It is the death of Christ that offered one propitiatory, that is satisfactory, payment for sins on the cross, according to the Bible. See, Jesus Christ, when he died on the sins, took our guilt because we sinned against a holy God. And that's the condition of mankind today. The status of mankind today is not only you know, getting worse and worse, obviously, if you pay attention whatsoever, but it's really the result of a rejection of God. And we stand in our sins, separated from God, and we need to be restored. And God says, you know what? Even though you deserve hell, even though for the rest of us we'd say forget you, God in his love sent his only son to die on the cross for your sins and mine so that we could be forgiven and rescued and given the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that's the benefits. And when we recognize God as a creator and then as the one who then became our savior, we can 
trust in him and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have eternal salvation. And so in creation, we see the, the glory of God on exhibit. And he points us to who the greatness of God. And we begin to recognize that we can enjoy the, the, the person of God with salvation and with the daily benefits he loads us with in life, doesn't he? If you turn to the book of Hebrews, another thing we see about the grace of God, not only is it, is it on exhibit in creation, it was expressed in Jesus Christ on, in his life on the, on the earth and his work of the cross. Go to Hebrews chapter 1 if you're following along this morning. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, that's the Old Testament prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, he's a creator, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down in the right hand of the majesty on high. What is glorious about Jesus Christ? What is it about the glory of God seen or expressed in the person of Jesus Christ? What is the brightness or radiance of his glory expressed in a person here? It is, first of all, he's creator. It's through him he made all things. Secondly, he is the expression of the person of God, the nature of God. We see, we see the, the, the compassion of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's also glorious that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And that's something we forget. And that also expresses to us the loving kindness of God, the nature of his love for mankind, because he's the one who's sustaining life, whether people know him or not, appreciate or not, or acknowledge it or not. Even for those who reject him, God sustains life. He is a sustainer of life. And I don't care how, many, how much legislation you come up with to try to preserve this earth through, through various social policies, we're going to stay in existence as long as God says so, because he is the one who sustains the earth. I've always been in, in kind of enamored with something I probably mentioned way too often, but the fact that in our oxygen, I mean, excuse me, in, our, in the air we breathe, the percentage of oxygen has to be within a certain range for us to live and be healthy. And with all the contributors to that and the consumers of the carbon monoxide, and I mean the oxygen and, and the producers, it's amazing that that balance stays the same. I mean, every car, plankton, animal, plant, you know, and we're mowing down forests and building factories and they all contribute to that balance and yet how does it stay in control and according to scientists, they acknowledge it's a mystery they can't explain. How do we manage that? I think it's somewhere between like 18 and 21%, 23% oxygen in our air in order for us to live. It's so simple. God does. God's the one who sustains life. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And God is able to take care of us. It doesn't mean that we become irresponsible as stewards of the earth. But we just recognize who's really in control, don't we? And that's what was expressed in Jesus Christ. That's who he is. That's what's glorious about him. And the last thing mentioned here is he took our sins. He had by himself, he himself, by himself, purged our sins. The creator... The one who, is the, who expresses the nature of God, the one who upholds things by his power, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that is a glorious thing that expresses to us his great love and grace. And then he rose again, which exhibits God's power. And so we find the glory of God expressed in here in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's go over to John chapter 1. 
John chapter 1, where we see another perspective in regards to the person of Christ. And remember, the, the book of John was a, was a gospel that was written some years after the other, other gospels. It seems to have more truths that are relevant to the establishment of the church, of the New Testament period. And so he made, John writes this observation here in verse 14, He's, and he says, And the word became flesh. That's Jesus, the living word. He became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is a wonderful, wonderful description of what, what, was, what they beheld in regards to Jesus Christ. And John summarizes it here as he's full of grace and truth. And some have pointed out that that means he's 100% grace and 100% truth in respect to his character. The, gra the, the grace of God representing his unconditional love, his compassion, his mercy, his patience in our lives. And we see that in Christ. You know, in John chapter 4, when Jesus confronted the woman at the well and had a discussion with her, coming in that text, we find out that she had five husbands and was living with another man, yet Jesus did not condemn her. He, he revealed himself to her. He said, I am he, the, the, the Messiah. He revealed himself to her. And later in John chapter 8, the woman that was caught in adultery and hauled to Jesus by her accusers, he concludes that discourse by, by saying, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. These are expressions of the wonderful grace of God, or God, which proves to us that God is not a big God interested in condemning people. He's a God who would love and save people. He's a God of grace and mercy, and it's these type of things, the feeding of the, of the 5,000 and the 4,000, the healing, and all these things show the compassion and love of grace, which, which caused John to summarize. What's glorious about God is his grace. It was a glorious thing to observe the grace of God in action in a person's life in real life situations. And we see God's grace at work today, isn't it? It's a grace of God that brings salvation that has appeared to all men. It appears today. It continues today. Because the work of the, the life of Jesus Christ ended tragically on the cross, but gloriously in that it took care of the sin problem for you and I. And God, in his grace, offers to you and I forgiveness. That means it's free. That means it's unconditional. That means that we, don't, we never deserve it, but God gives it to those who will simply trust Christ by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith of that, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. Grace is a free gift given to those who will trust the one who took your sins and mine on the cross. We see God's grace today in his mercy towards us. Throughout the scriptures, we see references to God's everlasting mercy. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And he has compassion towards us. We often think as God's children that, you know, when we fail God, we sin against God, which we often and frequently do. That, you know, we've, do, we've let God so bad that he just, for, he just ignores us, forgets us, he's against us. But Psalms 103 reminds us that he is a father who pities his children. He wants, he extends mercy and compassion to lift us up. And so we see the grace of God at work in our lives, not only providing for us, because grace provides all that we need for life and godliness, but also in his treatment towards us and his support of us and his help towards us to pick us up and put us on our feet. It's a glorious thing when we recognize that in our lives. Not only do we see the glory of God exhibited in creation, we, we see it expressed in the person of Christ and how he relates to us in life. It's a glorious thing. And it's revealed to us 
through the promises and reassurances of his word. That's where we see it, isn't it? We see the person of Christ. And so if the Bible sometimes gets to be mundane, and sometimes it does to people, then we need to have our eyes open. We need to, in the snowstorms of life, not see the tragedy, but see the beauty. And we need to see in the dealings of life, not see our failures, but God's goodness. We need to shift our focus to, to the glorious grace, mercy, kindness, patience, and long-suffering of our God, our faithful God. In fact, I think we'll go on to spending eternity discovering the depths of his amazing grace on exhibit in Jesus Christ. We also see in Christ, Jesus Christ, the truth. He's full of grace and truth. It was glorious to see his truth, which, which relates to his righteousness, right living, his justice, his equity, his holiness. In fact, Psalm 115.1 says the same thing, where it says, Now, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Grace and truth. Same thing in, in Psalms. Recognizing the gloriousness of God's mercy and his truth. Psalm 119, 137 and 38 says this, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. That's your word, your promises, your principles, your teachings. Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. If you turn back to Psalm, 19, Psalm 19, excuse me, you were there once before, and I, we can't help but ignore the middle portion of this psalm, because in the first portion, beginning of the psalm, we see the glory of God revealed, the person of God and all his glory revealed in creation. In the middle part, we see it revealed through his word. We left off at verse 7, and we see all these references to the Bible. The law of the Lord is perfect, converts the soul. The testimony, that's the word of God, is sure. It makes wise the simple. The statutes, the teachings of the judgments of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, it enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, they the much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb, and moreover by them your servant is warned. In keeping of them, there is great reward. And though it doesn't use the word glorious in here, the description is obvious, isn't it? The word of God gives us glorious truths about God, glorious truths to live by, glorious, glorious teachings that transforms our lives. That, that teaches us about Christ and that it establishes us in him. And Jesus Christ exhibited that truth in his life, in his dealings on life. He respected the righteousness of God when he corrected the false teachers, when he purged the temple. He, he was just and fair in his dealings amongst men, and he continues to be so with us today. You see, it's the character of God that is glorious as it is expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. Another thing about the glory of God we also observe is that sometimes it's visible. You know, we're talking about things that we see in creation. Sometimes we see uh, glory, uh, the glory of God we see in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But sometimes the glory of God is referred to in the Bible as something being visible, his effulgence, a visible brightness. Now, it's often that was veiled in human experience. Remember, in the temple, when the glory of God would fill the tabernacle or the temple, it was veiled in a cloud of smoke and by day and fire by night. It was veiled from human experience. Yet it was so thick and, and, and dark that often people could not enter the temple because the glory of God represented God's dwelling amongst his people, his, his heavenly presence amongst men. We call it the Shekinah glory. Yet someday in heaven, 
that glory will be visible. Turn, to, if you will, to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. And, then, and someday when we're off this sin-cursed earth, the, the glory of God in its visibility will be a full-time enjoyment. Revelation 21. If you remember, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he requested of the Father that his disciples could join him someday, that they may be held his glory. The glory he had before he came to earth, he wanted to share with them his glory. And that's what we find here in Revelation 21. Let's just read a few verses here. Verse, verse 22, referring to the new Jerusalem, it says this, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in, in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their, their glory and honor into it. Its gates gate shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles, and so on. And so someday it's going to be 24-7 to live in the glory of God. It's going to light our heavenly existence according to this passage. And so though the glory of God at times may have been veiled, especially in Old Testament experience, someday it will be something we live in. Now there is one exception to that rule, by the way, seems to always be. Luke chapter 2, and verse 9, when, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, it says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about, round about them. And these shepherds got a glimpse of the glory of the Lord that shone about them and they were greatly afraid. So someday we're going to live in the visible brightness of his glory, the effulgence. And throughout Revel the book of Revelation, we see that revealed from time to time. But we also see in the scriptures God's desire that his glory be revealed in his children. And that's where you and I come in. He wants to put on, a, on display his glory in us. And that begins with, first of all, attributing him glory. We read in our scripture reading this morning in 1 Chronicles 16, after the placing of the ark in its rightful place in the temple, re restoring God to the center of service and worship and national life, they rejoiced. And, and so 1 Chronicles 16 is actually taken from three different psalms, from Psalm 105, Psalm 96, and Psalm 106, all bunched together in 1 Chronicles 16 as they rejoiced in seeing God at the center of their lives and placing the ark there. And they gave him glory and the credit for bringing his nation to the point they were that day. And that's why it says in verse 29 of 1 Chronicles 16, Give to the Lord glory, the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And so one part of seeing the glory of God in our lives is having us attributed to him, to giving him that honor, to give and thanks and praise. And it's seen as we attribute to God his love for us his goodness to us. And some, for some reason, as people, we often are shy to utter those words, to thank the Lord for his work in our lives. But that's where it begins, isn't it? We attribute that to him, not just in a worship service, but as we see him in the big and little things of everyday life. But we're also to reflect his glory in our lives. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While you're turning there, I'll mention this verse. Isaiah 43, 7 says this, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. 
again, taking our rightful place as the created, as recognizing that we're not only created by God, but if you're a Christian, you've been purchased and redeemed by God. God has created us for his glory. That's his reason for creating us. Why am I here? Well, Isaiah 43, 7 says, I've created for my glory. We're here for the glory of God. And the wonderful thing about that is that taking our place as his created ones bring great blessing and benefit to our lives. This verse in 1 Corinthians 6, the end of the chapter, falls in the context of the challenge to moral purity. But he says this in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? A key phrase there, you are not your own. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with that, well, put it on your dashboard, on your refrigerators, on the mirror in your bathroom to remind us. We're the created, we're the redeemed. We've been created, we've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. We are not our own, for you have been brought with a price. The blood of Christ, that is. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. God says our bodies ought to glorify God. And I think that intends that, that others may be able to behold the glory of God in our lives when, he sees, when they see God's transforming work occurring in our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where it talks about the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, it says that when we observe the Lord in the, in the mirror of the Word of God, when we're in the Word of God, that we're transformed in the same image from glory to glory. I love the way that's put. That means from one glorious change to another glorious change, from one glorious teaching to another glorious teaching, God is at work in our lives to make our, make our lives glorious. And we're glorious when we, when we submit to his word and reflect the person of Christ in our lives. When he is seen in us, it is a glorious thing. And that seems somewhat absurd to us that a sinner like me can actually reflect the glory of God. That we can actually bring honor to God when we honor him by surrendering to the work of the Spirit in our lives. And that's why later on in chapter 4, it says this, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that knowledge isn't internally just to us, it's to others. God wants to shine in us through the power of the gospel and changing our lives that we might reflect the glory of God. And I think in our conclusion in the book of Philippians chapter 4, when it, when it acknowledges the glory of God, what Paul is saying, when we're willing to consider these truths to be real and by faith surrender to them in our lives, God will change us and will reflect his glory, his person. You know, Psalm 119, that long chapter, which is about the Bible, I think all but a few verses refer to the scriptures in one way, shape, or form. And it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful book. It, and it really helps establish our right relation for the word of God and it describes the glory of walking in the rightness of God's word. That's the glory of God expressed. If we look at the writer of Psalm 119 and his relationship to the word of God, his desire to walk in the word of God, his desire to honor the word of God, to live in the word of God, what we really see is a glorious life that is directed by the rightness of God's word as we surrender to it. And that's why in our lives we come down to that one overarching principle that should undergird all of our lives, 1 Corinthians 10.31.
his glory to others. We do all for the glory of God. It's a serious consideration. It's not just a verse we blow past. It's what's to guide every attitude, every decision, every notion in life. And when we do that, we're not only gloriously changed, but we bring glory to him. 